I want to speak tonight about those four states known as the Brahma Viharas or our best home, our most supreme abiding or dwelling. The first of these, of course, is metta or loving kindness. For a long time, I had hoped that the word metta itself would seep into the culture because it is such a difficult word to translate. Loving kindness is probably the most common translation, and it's fine, but I often think because it's such an uncommon word, you don't really hear people throwing it around in casual conversation all that much. It makes the quality seem kind of precious and remote, something arcane. Love is also a common translation of the word metta. But the word love itself is so complex in terms of how we use it and what we mean and uh, shades of, of inference and so on. Sometimes when we say love, we really do mean attachment or expectation, something that is quite conditional in the mode of exchange. That's when we say, you know, I will love you as long as the following 15 conditions are met. I once used that example in a group and somebody said, only 15? <laughs> you know, <laughs> We can have a very long list. And that state of, of attachment, of trying to be in control of someone or something is different from what is meant by metta. Because that state of attachment is so fragile, it's so dependent, it's so uneasy, it's so guarded against the truth of how much things do change. Sometimes when we use the word love, we really uh, mean a kind of ally of delusion, a sentimentality. And this is what people fear a lot when they contemplate metta practice, that there will be an unwillingness to look at conflict, at pain, at suffering, at difficulty, and everything will be covered over with this this faint shading of pretentiousness. (laughs) You know, a very phony kind of seeming state of love. But really, metta does mean friendship. And it's a powerful, powerful quality. I think sometimes about our our time, our society, our culture, and how sad it is that our idea of love so commonly has degenerated so that it is thought of as a weakness, as something that's kind of foolish or stupid, that it will blunt our ability to perceive reality as it actually is. It will weaken our ability to align ourselves with the good, trying to arrange, to seek, to, to create good in this world. Many years ago, when my um, second book was coming out, A Heart as Wide as the World, I was teaching uh, with Joseph and Steve Armstrong and some other friends the equivalent of this retreat. It was before Spirit Rock was built, and we were teaching somewhere else. And I was in that period of a writer's life, where I was absolutely, completely obsessed with what the book should be called, because we didn't have a title. And so sitting after sitting, it was like, oh. <laughs> Just one, one of my colleagues, who shall remain unnamed, actually came into the hall one day and said to me, I'm not going to sit next to you anymore, <laughs> because all I think about is book titles. <laughs> you know, it was so strong, it was just spreading out. Um, But I uh, heard that phrase, a heart as wide as the world, in someone else's Dharma talk, and I thought, that's it. So I called the publisher and told them I really wanted that title. But in the meantime, they had planned another title and had created an entire book cover design for this other title. But I really, really begged them to call it a heart as wide as the world. So they had 24 hours in which to completely redesign the cover. And they started sending me faxes. Um, I got this fax. Um, I don't know why they chose it. I guess, I guess because it had a certain sense of expanse. But it was a Van Gogh print. I don't remember the name of the painting. 
it was this huge, huge yellow sky with a few little crumbled buildings down in the corner. And I looked at it and I thought, that should be the cover for the Grapes of Wrath or something like that. (laughs) That looks horrible, you know, these crumbled little buildings, this big yellow, yucky sky. So I showed it to a friend of mine who's very um, sensitive and has a great aesthetic sense. And I said to her, what do you think? And she took a look at that and she said, that is a world that needs some love. (laughs) And that particular phrase, that's a world that needs some love, has been coming back to me again and again and again in our times. This is really a world that needs some love. And yet we can feel so separate from the power of that. And there can be so much misunderstanding about the power of that force of love. Metta really is friendship. It's developing the art of friendship first toward ourselves, and that means all aspects of ourselves. Not just those parts of ourselves that we like an awful lot and we proudly present to the world, but those parts of ourselves that we're a little bit out of touch with or that feel somewhat hidden to us, and those parts of ourselves that we don't like very much. With those two, there can be the spirit of friendship. And ultimately, that opening to connection, to care for all beings everywhere, that art of friendship. Once when I was um, teaching a retreat in Barry, I was asleep at night, and I had a dream that I was teaching a retreat in Barry, which wasn't very exciting. But um, <laughs> the exciting part was that in my dream, I was, I was talking to somebody, I was doing an interview with somebody about their meditation practice. And in the dream, they looked at me and said, why do we love people? And I responded by saying, because they recognize us. And then I woke up and I thought, that's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there is something in us that wants to be seen, to be known, to be touched, to be appreciated below our personalities, our fears the story of our day, the circumstance we find ourselves in. That is the the power, it's it's actually the very nature of loving kindness, is that kind of recognition of something that is deeper than the particular story that is running at that time, recognizing something in ourselves that is deeper and recognizing something in others ultimately, in all others. When I say that I think of metta not so much as a feeling, it's because I I think ultimately what it is really is an aspect of awareness. It's a kind of attention that we pay. First of all, it means a fullness, a completeness of attention. Rather than being fragmented, half here, half somewhere else. We learn to gather our energy, to be whole. We learn to listen. We learn to see more clearly. I have a friend who many years ago, when we were living in India, went to visit the 16th Karmapa, who's a very great, was a very great, eminent, uh, well-known Tibetan teacher. And My friend said that the Karmapa treated his arrival as though it were just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life. And he said he did that not through great pomp and circumstance or through grandiose flourishes. He did that. He conveyed that impression by paying absolute, complete attention to him. So that my friend said the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. And when he told me that story, I first thought of all the different encounters I have where I'm kind of there and kind of not because I'm thinking about the next person I need to talk to or the phone call I need to make. And I realized, you know, it wouldn't take that much to actually be undistracted, to, to make that effort 
to be more completely present. And that is like a gift of love. I also see metta as an aspect of attention. Uh, and I think it's, it's symbolized strongly by the phase of metta practice we came to today in the offering of metta to a neutral person. The neutral person, as you know, is somebody we don't strongly like or dislike. We find them kind of neutral. (laughs) And so interesting to reflect on that for a moment, that there are living, breathing human beings who want to be happy, just as we do, but they're like objects to us. We look right through them. We look right around them. We don't have that sense of recognition. But if we pay attention to them, which is what we are doing in offering the phrases, is gathering our attention, holding them in our hearts, including them rather than excluding them or ignoring them, something happens. I always consider this the most charming aspect in a way of metta practice because here's this person you feel kind of neutral about. Last time I taught metta, somebody asked me um, about the ethics of disclosing to your metta object that they were your metta object. Is it okay, you know, to say to somebody, you were my benefactor? And then I thought, well, I don't know exactly the social etiquette of saying to somebody, when I first met you, I was completely indifferent to you. I found you totally neutral. You know, but in fact, that's the case. And often in the beginning, when we are offering metta to a neutral person, it's kind of boring. We don't know their personal sorrows, so our compassion isn't necessarily elicited. They haven't done us a great favor so that we feel almost indebted to wish them well. They haven't challenged us terribly so that we look at them and think, okay, you're my edge between being free and not being free. We just feel kind of neutral toward them. But over time, if we actually keep paying attention to them, we find, it's amazing, this tremendous sense of care develops. And once again, you may not have that great breakthrough experience in your formal practice, but it's something that you find actually does develop. Many times when I teach metta retreats or or just long retreats in which metta is a component, we suggest that you try to choose somebody here in the retreat context as your neutral person because you'll tend to run into them now and then. And very often, for weeks on end, somebody will say to me, I don't feel anything for them. I don't feel anything for them. Nothing's happening. I'm not doing it right. And then one day I'll get a note saying, my neutral person wasn't at breakfast. Could you please go check on them? (laughs) And I think you're right, you know. (laughs) It's just what they want. (laughs) But it's just that feeling. Are they okay? You know, are you okay? (laughs) It's what happens. And we also see metta as a, a facet of awareness. It's, a, it's an aspect of awareness because it helps us see things in a way that opens us to the interconnectedness, which is actually the truth of things. It's not a state we manufacture. It's not something we fabricate. It's an opening to something that is genuinely true. So a very common example I use all the time is how many people are actually sitting here right now? They're all of us, of course, physically. But what if we added everyone who'd influenced us in some way to be here? People who'd given us a book or read us a poem or told us about their meditation experience. So what if they were here too? And all the people who'd hurt us really significantly, maybe really broke our hearts so that we were almost forced to look for a deeper meaning of happiness 
Now, so what if they were here too? And the people who are taking care of things right now at home for many people so that, you know, we're able to be here as well as the people who are taking care of things right here. And all the people who made the clothes that we're wearing and grew the food that we ate today. You know, we can expand and expand and expand. And there's just some sense of the truth of things, which is that no one and nothing stands apart and alone. That all of life is this confluence of conditions coming together. We've all come here, this moment in time is a result of influences and relationships and connections. That's what it's made up of. That's really the truth of existence. And that's the quality of attention that is metta. That can appreciate the fabric of life being what it is. And so when we practice, it's very much in that spirit. It's like an alignment of of love and wisdom to see things as they are and to have that opening strengthen our ability to, in a moment, recognize a deeper truth about ourselves and about one another. (coughs) We also use metta, we use where we see metta as a quality of attention because of that moment when we take the time to look a little deeper. One of the classic reflections that's done as a kind of springboard for metta is to look for the good in someone. And that includes ourselves, beginning with ourselves. To look for the good. And again, this isn't meant to make us sort of stupid or dull, but we see that when we fixate and we obsess and we go on and on and on about what's wrong with somebody, maybe it's ourselves, maybe it's somebody else, we will naturally want to recoil or separate. Whereas if we can see just one good thing about somebody, then there's a sense of connection. And from that vantage point, we can honestly and distinctly look at everything that's difficult without pretending it's not there. But it's different. There's not that huge gulf of self and other, that sense of utter separation. So the instruction is to look for the good. So I was practicing in Burma when I first did the Brahma Viharas intensively, systematically, and I received that instruction. The very first thought I had was, I'm not going to do that. I thought, that's what stupid people do. (laughs) You know, they go around looking for the good in everybody. I thought, I don't even like people who are like that. You know, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But as I tell the story, I was very far from home. I was in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't feel like it. (laughs) You actually do it. And so I did it. And much to my amazement, it worked. It worked in just the way it was supposed to work. Not for me to enter this fog of delusion, but to create some space, some sense of possibility, to realize that on some level, this person and I are still connected, no matter what. And it was very helpful. And of course, there are times when it's completely unreal. It's not going to happen whether it's a really bad day and we're looking at ourselves or we're looking at somebody else. Then the other reflection is that very simple idea that the Buddha spoke of when he said that all beings everywhere want to be happy. Everybody just wants to be happy. And it is because of ignorance. It's because of not seeing, not sensing where happiness is to be found that we do the things that cause so much suffering for ourselves and others. But everybody just wants to be happy. We want to feel at home in this life. We want to feel part of something bigger than our limited sense of self. We want to be happy. That's metta. 
It's taking the time to open, to recognize a sense of connection that actually is there. The Buddha said, I think, quite beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, it cannot be marred, it cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. As if somebody was standing here in the middle of the room, throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. So it's not going to matter if it's a very well-chosen color or a really garish mistake. The space won't be ruined by the paint. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which can hold everything, which can envelop everything, which can contain everything and be free nonetheless. I was once um, giving a talk at the Asia Society in, in New York City's museum um, about metta, and this very young girl came, maybe seven years old, something like that, with an adult. Um, and it was a little hard to tell, actually, in their dynamic, if the adult had brought the child or the child had brought the adult. <laughs> But I use that example, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. And when the question period came, the little girl raised her hand and she said, I don't understand that. You know, how is love like space? So I said, well, I think it's like space in that sense of, of not being ruined, not dying as the objects within change. And that sense of, of being so unconfined, so unconstrained that it can hold anything, just to be that open. And she looked at me and she said, I understand that now. (laughs) And I thought, okay, (laughs) that's okay. So that is metta. It's very different than a Hallmark greeting card. You know, or as I said yesterday, a continually enforced Valentine's Day. And yet it is considered a power, a possibility, um, a nascent strength within all of us. This ability to connect, to understand our lives, to be free, is within us. That's the spirit with which we practice. The second of the Brahma-viharas is compassion. And these all support one another and in some ways can be found in one another. They're just different um, aspects of that free heart. Compassion, um, literally, as a translation, means the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It's a movement of the heart that is based, first of all, on being able to see suffering as suffering, which isn't always so easy. In fact, one of the um, most famous quotations of the Buddha is when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering One of my friends who's a wit said, well, suffering and the end of suffering are two things. They're not one thing. (laughs) But sometimes they are one thing. It's that complete, open-hearted recognition or acknowledgement of suffering, which does open us to the end of suffering. But of course, it's it's statements like that of the Buddhas that have given um, the impression that Buddhism, Buddhist teaching is very pessimistic. I remember once reading in um, New Yorker magazine many years ago an article on Buddhism. And according to the writer of the article, the Buddha said that the purpose of life is to suffer. (laughs) And I thought, boy, is that inviting, (laughs) you know? I'm going to go to that retreat. (laughs) So it's not that the purpose of life is to suffer. But there is certainly suffering as a part of life. And we need to be able to acknowledge it, to recognize that, to open to that, not to feel alone with that, not to feel cut off because of that, not to feel ashamed or humiliated by that. That statement, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering, also refers to, it's almost a kind of... um, grid or or, um, 
basis on which to, to look at life experience. So if we're looking at our own minds and we see jealousy and fear and greed, rather than calling them bad and wrong and terrible and thinking we should be condemned for those terrible, horrible states, we can actually see them as states of suffering, which is what they are. And when we see times of wisdom, of connection, of care, we can see that as states that are expressive of the end of suffering. So what if we were seeing our own mind states, our own emotions, as suffering rather than bad, wrong, terrible, horrible? More naturally, rather than having that impulse toward rejection, toward anger, toward shame, we would feel kind of compassion for ourselves, quite naturally. And just as we can view ourselves in that light, we can view others in that light to see things in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. It's almost a whole translation process in our minds to be able to recognize there's suffering in this state, whether it's our own or others, and then to be able to be present with it not to want to repackage it, to deny it, to avoid it, to look the other way, to try to pretend it's something other than what it is, but to be able to be there and not to be broken by it, not to be shattered or overcome by the suffering that we see. Several years ago, uh, some of you actually might have been there, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to New York City as he's going to do again in September. And um, just as he will this next September, last time he was there, he gave several days of teachings in a theater that they had rented. And then he gave a very large open public talk at Central Park. And a very good friend of ours uh, organized the whole thing. And I knew her heartfelt desire more than anything was to get a lot of people into the park and all kinds of people to have be really diverse and open and welcoming to everybody. It was free. There was no registration. So there was no way of knowing how many people would come. And the day before it happened, it started pouring rain. I thought, oh no, you know, what's it going to be like tomorrow? But the day it actually was going to happen, it stopped raining. We got up very early in the morning and went into the park and couldn't see anything for a while. But I could hear the sound of Tibetan chanting in the distance. So I just followed the sound of the chanting. At one point, I turned a corner, and there was an ocean of people. There were hundreds of thousands of people there. The official, uh, or the unofficial, I should say, um, estimates from the people providing the security was about 250,000 people. There was this huge, huge number of people, and it was extraordinary. It was so beautiful. We sat down together in, I think, a, a very unique kind of silence and quiet for that many people to be gathered together and just waited. When uh, the Dalai Lama actually began speaking, he began by saying something that I found very surprising in a way. He began by saying, You know, from a certain point of view, it hasn't been such an easy life for me. I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to daily try to keep intact this culture, living in exile. I've had to daily hear about the terrible things that are happening within Tibet He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, that's what one sees in him, is that he's pretty happy. And obviously, it's not a happy in the sense of happy-go-lucky, you know, and, and not recognizing all the distress around him by any means. It's nothing like that. He said, the reason that I'm pretty happy, <laughs> even though it hasn't been such an easy life, is because of the force of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with others. 
It makes me feel close to others. So it's that sense of ending isolation, that, that sense of being cut off all alone that we can, we can dispel through the force of compassion. That's why we're not broken by the suffering, even though it might be very grave. Because underneath it, we can recognize that kind of closeness. That's the force of compassion. The next quality is sympathetic joy, which I began talking about also somewhat yesterday, to actually take delight in the happiness of others rather than to feel dismayed, threatened, jealous, envious, craving, (laughs) all of those other things one can so readily feel. And it's interesting, some teachers have said that of the four Brahma-viharas of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, sympathetic joy for many people is the most difficult. By and large, we're not necessarily cruel people. It's because we don't take the time, we don't pay attention in a certain way to recognize someone's suffering, whether it's our own or somebody else. That's why compassion doesn't always arise, because we're not paying attention in the right way. But to actually be delighted that someone else is happy takes a strong generosity and a tremendous wisdom to realize that our own happiness won't be diminished by this other person's happiness. It will only increase because of that. Last winter, uh, January, I spent most, if not all, of the month of January in Los Angeles, happily. And when I would call home to Barry, Massachusetts, they would say, you know, it's 10 below, <laughs> it's 5 below. And one day I had, um, I had to call a doctor's office in, in Massachusetts to change an appointment um, for later. And I, at that point I was staying at a friend's house in Malibu right on the beach and the receptionist on the other end kept saying to me, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And I said, well, maybe that's because the sound of the waves <laughs> is so strong that, that you, know, you can't hear me. I said, I'm in Malibu. And she said, are you really? And I said, yes. And she said, I hate you. <laughs> and I said, oh. And she said, is that why you need to change your appointment? Because you're still going to be in Malibu? I don't know if I'm going to change your appointment. <laughs> And I thought, well, you know, if I was back in 10 below, I might say the same thing. But here the Dalai Lama, again, is, is a great model for me. He once said, it only makes sense to develop happiness in the happiness of others because then you increase your own chances of happiness six billion to one. <laughs> he said, those are very good odds. And you think about it. You don't have to spend any money. You don't have to leave home. All you have to do is think of someone else's happiness, be happy, and you're happy. You know, think of that. I think we all know the strength and the beauty of the quality because we know what it's like when we receive it and when we don't. You know, something really good happens for us, and some people are so delighted for us. And what a joyful thing that is to feel how happy they are for us. And sometimes a really good thing happens for us and someone might smile, you know, or they may act like they're happy, but you can tell they're not very happy. And how that kind of um, degrades some of the joy that you feel when, when you face their own, that person's sense of competitiveness or something. It's a very beautiful quality. And while somewhat difficult for some people. Some people have it naturally, which I think is an amazing trait. It's a beautiful trait. But the rest of us need to practice it in some way. While it's difficult, it's certainly not impossible. And here again, it has to do with how we pay attention. We can remember that everything changes all of the time, that no one is just happy that all conditions of life come and go. Do we really begrudge this person the joy that they're feeling 
have we solidified it in some way as to imagine that is all they will ever have while we will have none of it? How are we paying attention? What do we care about more than anything? What will really make us happy? I once had an experience where I had a friend who wanted to bring his father to India to study with a certain um, teacher. And he asked me what I thought about that plan. So I said in response, I think it's a terrible idea. (laughs) You know, it's going to be hot. Your father's going to hate the food. Probably be full of bugs. You know, he might get sick. The scene around the teacher is really strange. You know, he might get really offended. I think it's a bad idea. But my friend did it anyway. He brought his father to India. They had the best time they'd ever had, like, ever. The father became a disciple of the teacher. (laughs) And then began teaching in the teacher's lineage. You know, changed his whole life. So when they told me that... (laughs) I felt that moment of being offended that I'd been so wrong, you know? And I wanted to hold on to having been right. So there was that moment when I had a choice between being aggrieved, you know, that somehow my advice had been wrong, or being happy for them. I just think, look at that. I was completely wrong. I'm so glad that you're happy. Sometimes that's what we really do, is we come back to what we really care about more than anything. What is our primary intention? What is our aspiration? What do we imagine for ourselves? What do we think is possible? And then we're more able to let go and genuinely be happy for the happiness of others. Then the last of the Brahmaviharas after loving-kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, is equanimity, which in some ways is the ground of all of them. Equanimity doesn't mean indifference or withdrawal from life, which in some ways are, are sometimes subtle forms of hostility. It actually does mean balance. I think of equanimity as being the voice of wisdom, as being the articulation of wisdom to see things as they are, to see what we can't control, to see that things inevitably change, to see that there are boundaries to what can be done. And at the same time, to have not apathy or withdrawal because of that, but having the basis of of strength, of calm, of composure, of peace, to be able to give unstintingly. All of those practices like like metta and compassion and sympathetic joy are really practices of generosity. Which means that the intention with which we give is really very important. It is so easy to offer metta, for example, with that, what one of my friends once called it, metta with an edge. You know, okay, here's your timetable for getting happy, you know. You have three days, and I'd like you to be happy in just this way. What does it mean to be able to offer metta, to really wish someone well, and know we can't make it so? And not to have that realization make us pull back or be afraid or have the sense of powerlessness rule the day. But instead, to have that realization be able to sustain our presence, our attention, our quality of giving. What does it mean to offer compassion, to see someone's pain, to wish them well, to want them to be free of suffering? And to know we can't make it that way. How many times do we pull away because we're not in control? Because we can't affect the result that we want. 
So imagine instead having a kind of sense of sufficiency or balance which allows us to recognize we're not going to be able to change things according to our design and still to care. That's how equanimity will support the qualities of of metta and compassion. They say that equanimity endows metta with patience. And it endows compassion with courage. Because it's not easy to open to suffering and not to feel overcome or broken by that. It's the power of equanimity. It's the balance that, that allows us to be that present. It said that equanimity allows sympathetic joy to be more boundless, to grow beyond that very narrow circle of beings that we can feel happy for with their happiness, to have it expand and open. Equanimity is wisdom that sees that life, as the Buddha said, is made up of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's the nature of things. There is nobody who experiences only pleasure and no pain and nobody who experiences only praise and no blame. It's just not in the nature of things. When we can understand that, it's not that we don't feel anything or we don't care, but we also have perspective. We understand this is the truth. It's how things are. I use this example with um, several of my groups. I always think it's, it's most telling when we can look at a situation where we receive both praise and blame for the very same thing that we've done or said. And there are you know, infinite examples of that. I mean, just as one example, not the one I used with the group, which I'll get to in a minute, but um, as you notice, several of the teachers, when they come into the hall and when they leave, will bow to the Buddha statue. Um, this is uh, very much how one uh, relates to images like Buddha images in Asia, where uh, the statue of the Buddha is not considered an art object, you know, and now you, know, you open many magazines and you'll see a Buddha with a hat kind of sitting rakishly on his head or something like that. And, um, but the Buddha image itself is, is considered a kind of sacred object. And so when we bow to the Buddha, it's very much that sense of paying respect to the Buddha as a human being who realized the truth and embodied something that we also, each one of us, can, can touch as a possibility. And so it's, it's the um, common way of relating to a Buddha statue. And I remember the very first time anyone at IMS, at our center in Barry, ever did that. Because in no way is coming to a retreat considered to be about becoming a Buddhist, you know, but rather using the experience to cultivate one's own practice. It was just something that, you know, hadn't often been done. And then one teacher, one day, decided he wanted to do it. And he'd just come back from Thailand, and it was very much in his heart, and, and it was important for him to do it. So he came into the hall, he bowed to the Buddha statue, sat down, led the sitting, rang the bell, bowed to the Buddha statue, got up and got to the bulletin board, which in Barry is about the same distance as where I'm sitting now to the bulletin board out there. Maybe a little a little closer, actually. And by the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes on it for him. So he pulled off the first note, and it said, I was so happy to see you bow to the Buddha statue because I also have a very strong devotional side, and it means so much to me um, that it can be expressed freely here, too. He pulled the next note off the board, and it said, I was horrified to see you bow to the Buddha statue because, well, that might make sense in Asia. You know, it doesn't make any sense here. And it's like 30 seconds you know, from the last bow to the first note. (laughs) Life is like that. 
the example I used in my group was when uh, my last book, Faith, came out. And um, I was here somewhere in San Francisco and at the airport about to get on a plane to go back to Barry, to go back to Boston. I checked my messages at home and someone had left a message saying, um, did you know that your book was reviewed in the Boston Globe today? Which I hadn't. I was completely surprised. And the person went on to say, it was basically a really good review, except for those few disparaging remarks. <laughs> so the entire plane ride home, I was thinking, what disparaging <laughs> remarks were those? Which was a long flight. <laughs> and it's true, there were a lot, you know, there was basically a very positive review with some very disparaging remarks. You know, so what do you do? It's praise and blame for the very same action, same book. You know, it's not that we don't care, or certainly not that we should pretend we don't care, but how much do we care? You know, do we get completely confused about the worth of what we've done because of something we can't control? How many times do our hearts break when we have done something to the best of our ability with as pure motivation as we can, as carefully, as skillfully as we can manage, and we don't get the response that we seek. How much do we care? Can we have some balance of mind? Which doesn't mean coldness, it doesn't mean indifference, but the wisdom to say, yeah, things are as they are. That life is pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's how it is. Can that understanding, that wisdom, actually strengthen the power of our love, of our connection, of our effort to help in compassion? Can it open that sense of of delight and joy for others in sympathetic joy? That's how we use it. Each of those states of loving-kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy has what in the teaching is known as the near enemy. That's a state that's very close, but not really there at all. But it's close enough so that we can get confused. It can masquerade as the Brahma-vihara. The near enemy of loving-kindness is attachment. It's, I will love you as long as those following 15 or 30 or 300 conditions are met. The near enemy of compassion is sometimes talked about as pity, and sometimes um, the translation is sorrow or grief. And it doesn't mean grief as we use it in a, a conventional Western psychological sense. It's that sense of being completely overcome by the pain so that we don't have the energy to help, to try to help, to move forward, to to unite with others. It's being debilitated. And the near enemy of sympathetic joy is sometimes it's translated as giddiness, you know, just being happy for no good reason, (laughs) not based on the happiness of others. Um, Sometimes I've seen it translated as a state of comparison, you know, just always looking and checking one's own status, one's own well-being based on what we presume we know about the well-being of others. And it's equanimity, it's balance, it's wisdom that allows each of those states not to fall into its near enemy, to be its own authentic manifestation of that power of generosity, to give without expectation, and to be free to, to be happy, just like the Dalai Lama was happy because of the very nature of that giving. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
This is from the Buddha who said, The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.